All right, if you will take your Bibles out, please open them to the book of Hebrews in the sixth chapter. As promised, we're moving on a little bit, a few more verses moving ahead, so we're going to begin reading at verse 4. Just for context, we're going to focus our attention on verse 9 and following. So if you would join me in standing out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning at verse 4, reading on this time. For it is impossible that those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. But, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you, yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown towards his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope and to the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you give to us grace in this day and that you would show us the mercy of Christ being revealed. God, we ask that you would show us the mercy of Christ being revealed in our lives, that it would be a testimony of the truth of your work in us, that you would show us the gifts of grace and glory that you impart unto those that are your own, that you would allow us to see them and to understand them, to partake of them more fully. But God, that you would comfort us and encourage us as you show us the truth of our own salvation. God, help us to see it in a way that changes us. Help us to realize that you have done a work and let that knowledge and that power propel us, Father. Let it be that which encourages and strengthens us, gives us the ability to do what you put in front of us to do with joy and with purpose. And God, over all of it, I pray that Christ would be honored in our lives as we Obey and honor the Christ, who is everything for us. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. So what is it about a manner of life that allows accurate judgment to be made regarding a person's relationship with Christ? Can we decide with any confidence if someone is one of us or if they are outside the family of faith? The writer of Hebrews shifts gears here and offers comfort to his readers. He assures them that he is confident that they are indeed found in Christ. Now, I want to point out to you that this implies also the negative, that he has the ability to look at somebody's life and say, I don't have that confidence about you. Now, it doesn't mean that he can say without question, you're not saved. But he does say there are people that he doesn't have that confidence. And that's who he's been speaking about for the last four verses that we've spent so long on. It's a bold statement. okay? When he says, I'm confident of better things concerning you, considering the context of of the previous part of the chapter, it's a very bold statement for him to say, I have greater confidence of you. 
Um, But it's one that's merited. For the lives of the Hebrews were consistent with saving faith. God had given them lives that honored him. And that gave convincing evidence that their testimony of Christ was indeed founded on truth and not pretense. The author felt no hesitation to point out that they had passed the test, that their testimony had been weighed, judged, and approved. Now, this is a crucial skill. Uh, It helps us to accurately apply the gospel. If, If you know that you're speaking to somebody that is probably lost, that should shape the way that you interact with them. It should shape the way that you speak to them. It should shape the way that you think about them, the relationships that you form with them, the relationships that you abstain from. Having a right understanding of somebody's soul, being able to, to offer with some wisdom, some discernment, and, and make a judgment on, on some hard questions is a valuable and important skill. It helps us as we think about how to apply the gospel, what's actually necessary in somebody's life. And what's more, that same knowledge also helps us to correct sin in our own lives. It also helps us to correct sin in the lives of our brethren, and it helps guide the church to glorify Christ in the best manner possible. Now, all of this is, in one sense, sort of contrary to the popular vernacular of our culture and of the age, which says, you don't have any right to pass any kind of judgment on me about anything whatsoever, especially about spiritual things, because that's a very personal matter. Right? You hear that. If you are engaged in evangelism at any level, if you are sharing the gospel with people, somebody is lost it's very possible that they're going to be offended at your assumption that they're lost and need to hear the gospel. So if you feel at all like, I can't make that decision, so I'm just going to be quiet, then you are not being faithful to the calling that's on your life. I would commend to you the truth that I would rather stand with God and be judged by men than stand with men and be judged by God. Those are really the only two options. Somebody's going to judge you. It's either the people out there who don't have any basis for judgment, or it's the God who says, you know what I told you to do. And if you don't do it, we're going to have a conversation that you just might not like. Amen? So I want to think with you this morning about what the writer of Hebrews gives us as a guide to begin the process of accurately judging, of accurately assessing what is and what isn't appropriate in this sphere. And he starts off with this statement that he is confident of better things concerning them. So he's he's looking at the reality of the things that are being evidenced in their lives. He's looking at the reality of the things that they're demonstrating the things that they are showing, the things that are bearing fruit. And he says, right away, I want you to understand that there are some things which are better than others. Some people simply partake of better gifts. Okay? You can be speaking to somebody, and they can be the nicest person on the planet, and as lost as lost can be. Amen? We probably all have friends who fall into that category. We all have friends who we really wish would be saved because they're just such nice people. 
They'll do anything for you. They'll take care of you. They'll help out. They'll give you the shirt off their back. They're very nice people. They might have giftedness according to the world, which makes them exceptionally smart or exceptionally talented or exceptionally insightful. They might have wisdom that is very... I use the air quotes there because that was the context of our Bible study yesterday morning, the difference and distinction between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of man, which James says is demonic. Um, They might have a wisdom which presents itself to be very good and very smart, but it's not biblical wisdom, and therefore it's not actually wise. There is a qualitative difference between the natural gifts of the world the natural gifts that come to a man simply by being born, a woman by simply being born, God gives to each of us a certain amount of natural giftedness, talents and abilities and and character traits. And our, our nurture and our nature combine together to turn some people into very nice people. Now, it turns some people into real scoundrels. But that natural giftedness is not the same thing as somebody who is demonstrating a changed heart and a set of spiritual gifts that have been given at the time of their new birth. And we need to learn to discern the distinction. We need to understand that there is a qualitative difference between somebody who is made new and somebody who is not. And it's not always based upon their religiosity. It's not always based upon how religious they are or how faithful they are to a certain set of dogma or practices. So turn with me to the Gospel of Luke in the 18th chapter. And I want to listen to what Jesus tells us by way of a story that he gave, an example, um, which was given with a fairly sharp point. So Luke chapter 18, beginning at the ninth verse. He spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and who despised others. Now, I just want to stop right there and I want to draw your attention to what the point of this parable is. It's a very interesting thing that Luke gives us the focus the point, the thesis statement of the parable before he gives the parable. That's not the normal pattern. So this really stood out. This was something that that shocked him. And it was something that, that was shocking to the people because of the context of both the parable and the people to whom it was given. So I'll give you a little spoiler alert. The people to whom it was given were the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious elite, that all of the people of the land would have said, now that's the people who know God. But how does he describe them? They trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and they despised other people. So, let's listen to the parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or not even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. That's quite a prayer. I bet God is very impressed with him. And the tax collector, standing afar off, 
would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Here's Jesus' summary statement. Do not miss this. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. We see a qualitative difference between the character of these two men. We see a qualitative difference between their defining characteristics, their attributes of what makes them who they are, and we see a qualitative difference in their their understanding of their relationship to God. The religious elite, the scribes, the Pharisees, the the people who had the power and had the favor of the land and the awe and reverence of the people, they believed that they were the cat's meow. They believed that they were the ones who everybody should be impressed with because, to be honest, they were fairly impressed with themselves. They believed that God should be impressed with them. This is quite a prayer. I cannot imagine anybody with any honesty actually praying like this, but clearly he did. I thank you, God, that I'm not like all these other men, and don't miss the fact that this prayer was said out loud. So at the bottom of it, he's saying, and I thank you, God, that I'm not like Adam. Filthy, disgusting Adam. He's a wretch. I thank you, God, that I'm better than Adam. Can you imagine praying that way? At all, but more than that, praying that way in front of somebody so they would hear you? Who was this man's audience? Was it God? No. It was poor Adam, and it was all the people standing outside the temple who could also hear this prayer. When you perform for man, whatever you're doing, you have received your reward. When your objective in doing good things is that somebody comes along behind you, pats you on the back and says, oh, you're so wonderful. Take a moment and enjoy that because that's all the praise you're going to get. God won't praise you for it. But more than that, it indicates that the man who thought he was righteous was alienated from God by his unrighteous soul. And the man who understood his right relationship to God and his only prayer, the only thing that he could say was, God, have mercy on me. That man went home justified in the sight of God. God forgave him. Of those two men from the outside, nobody would have guessed that was the outcome. But God looks on the heart. So part of our challenge, if we're going to offer comfort and assurance to somebody that I am confident of better things concerning you in regards to your relationship to Christ, is you better have the ability to look in the right place and understand correctly what it is you're actually looking for. You're not looking for somebody who just does a lot of nice things so that everybody says nice things about them. That's not the question. You're not looking for somebody who can follow a very strict set of rules and regulations so that everybody will look at their life and say, see how holy they are. That's not the question. 
You're looking for something in them which says, I have a right understanding of my relationship with God. I know from what it is based upon, and I know what I am apart from him, and I know my need. And I have been made new, not by anything in me. I, I liked your prayer, Jared. It's the, it's the only gift that we cannot earn. It's exactly right. It's the greatest thing that you will never be able to earn. You will never be able to, to say, hey, I deserve this. And if you think you can, you are off base. Amen. If you think you can stand before God and say, God, you owe me something, take a step back and cry for mercy. Because in the end, that mindset, that thought process governs so much of people's religious understanding. It's the idea that I'm doing something that's, that's somehow worthy of God's attention or notice or favor or reward. And every works-based religion in the world operates from that premise. So at least part of the skill that you need to develop if you want to interact with people in a way to where you can assess right judgment. And, and I, do wanna, I do want to just make a, a statement about this again, just to make sure that I say it plainly enough. I'm not suggesting for one moment that you should ever go tell somebody, you're not saved. Not my point. I'm talking about you exercising judgment and discernment so you understand with whom you're dealing and how to approach dealing with them. I'm going to interact with somebody that I believe is a brother in Christ far differently than I'm going to interact with somebody that I believe is not. Necessarily, According to scripture, I have to fence and guard my relationships along that line. Scripture tells me that I'm not to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever in any way. I'm not to bind myself to them, not by marriage, which is the context of how it's primarily done, but not in my business associations, not in my close friendships, not in any way. I am not to have relationships in my life that are binding upon me with an unbeliever. Okay? Now, this doesn't mean you can't work for an unbeliever. We, we wouldn't work at all. But it does mean that you can't be partners with them. You should not enter into willing, contractual agreements with an unbeliever. And that doesn't necessarily mean just a written contract. There are social contracts as well. So this distinction between the difference of the quality or the actual nature of, of somebody's soul and the gifts that they partake in, you need to be discerning and be able to divide rightly between what is merely a natural giftedness or what is spiritual reality. Okay? Now, true spiritual obedience is completely different from mere outward obedience. So the Pharisee making this prayer you could have gone down the checklist of all of the outward laws that had been given, and you could have gone, did that, 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 got that one, did that one twice. This man is on track. But what was his heart? Vile in the sight of God. Not justified, alienated, and by definition at the front of the parable, Jesus described him as somebody who was sure of himself and alienated from God. He trusted only in himself for his righteousness. So if you're trusting in yourself for your righteousness, do you have any righteousness at all? No, not at all. So 
Spiritual giftedness is completely different from merely physical gifts and abilities. And true obedience is also completely different from merely outward obedience. Anybody can fake it for a while. And if I give you a list and say, here's the list, these are the things you must do so that you know you go to heaven, I can give you a list and any of you that are earnest can fulfill my list, no matter how complicated my list might be. Because it's just my list. It's just doing something. But if I tell you that what's required for salvation is to be born again, then you come up against the question that Nicodemus faced. How is that possible? And the answer that Jesus gave is, it's not for you. The wind blows where it will, and it does what it wants to do, and so is everybody born of the Spirit. You can only see the evidence of it. You can't make it happen. Those big giant fans out there, they're not making the right wind. It's not going to happen. It's only the power of God that changes our heart. Being a church member is not saving grace. Being a good person is not saving grace. Being religious or spiritual is not saving grace. Trusting in the wrong things will be your undoing. Look at Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. And um, I'm just going to read a few verses here. Paul says this. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith working through love. So in Galatians chapter 5, Paul addresses the same group of people that the writer of Hebrews has been blasting in the first part of chapter 6. Those who have an outward knowledge of Christ, those who know enough to know better than what they're believing, but who have instead returned to the law and said, I'm going to obey God, and by my obedience, God will owe me salvation. And what Paul says in Galatians is that those who trust in these things have entangled their souls, and they are obligated to keep the whole law. Now, think about this. What does that mean? If you're obligated to keep the entire law, does it only begin today? No. It proceeds retroactively to the moment of your birth until the moment of your death. And what the law requires from anybody in order to be acceptable in the sight of God is 100% perfection for the duration of your entire existence. You are not permitted to fail even once. So somebody who looks at God's law and says, okay, God, let's take you up on this. I'm going to obey your law, and you're going to save me because I'm a good person. They've already blown it. Just in the statement, they're trusting in themselves rather than in God. They're honoring themselves over God. Because the scripture tells us if you say that you have no sin, you call God a liar, and the truth is not in you. 
It's important for us to understand the dynamic that's at work here because the world wants us to believe that all of the things that it does or it can do in its own religious observances is exactly the same as what Christ tells us to do. When we talk about a plurality of religions and we talk about the idea that all paths lead to God, which is a very popular concept in our culture, what they're saying is that all of their works are equivalent to the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And if you know anything of what Jesus did, you know that that statement itself is the most insulting, degrading, horrifying blasphemy possible. There is nothing that anybody can do which comes even close to being able to be mentioned in the same century with what Jesus has done. And that includes Mary and all the saints and all the religious leaders of all the times in all the ages in all the places, whoever were or whoever will be. Christ alone stands supreme over everything. And if we don't understand that, we don't understand anything. So there is a qualitative difference between the gifts that the world enjoys and has and the gifts that the church enjoys. But there is also within the church a quantitative difference in how people partake of the good things that God gives. So there is a spiritual giftedness which is given to the church, which comes to us with the new birth. And there are some people that dive in and and eat it up with both hands like pigs, and some people that go, I don't really want to be too over the top and have people think that I'm weird. That's a quantitative difference in partaking of the gifts that God gives to us. You see, God grants repentance to all who are his own. So it begins there. If you have not repented, you do not belong to him. So this is kind of the ground zero position. Look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians 7, if you're still in Galatians, just flip back a little bit. Page or two in most Bibles. 2 Corinthians 7, we're going to start reading at verse 8. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceived that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a little while. Now I rejoice that you were made sorry, not that you were made sorrow, sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things, you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered the wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. So Paul's looking at the situation that went on in the Corinthian church. There was a great sinful thing that happened, and and we read about it in 1 Corinthians, and he wrote the letter of 1 Corinthians, and when we get to 2 Corinthians, he's speaking to a different church. It's the same church, but it's a vastly different church. They have repented, they have turned away from their sin, they are no longer glorying in the evil and the wickedness that even the pagans said, ah, 
That's gross. Why would you do such a thing? They're no longer acting in that way. And Paul points out that their sorrow over their sin led them to repentance. This is the gift of grace. When the Spirit of God presses into you and shows you your sin and shows you something in your life that's wrong and you turn away from it, that is the work of God's grace in you. That is the evidence of something being formed. That's not how the world acts. How does the world act? You were wrong. No, I'm not. Let me tell you why I'm right. Amen? Is that repentance? Or, or, or this? Okay, yeah, it was wrong, but let me tell you why I did it. Is that repentance? No. I was wrong. Please forgive me. Please, please help me not be wrong again, God. I have no justification. I have no excuse. I make no exceptions. I sinned. Be merciful to me, a sinner. David put it this way. Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. It's important for us to understand that repentance is the gift of God's mercy and that it is the gift of God, but when it comes, it strikes our sin and it strikes our rebellious heart and it breaks us in fundamental ways. And it's good that it does. Because the natural man will not receive the things of God, nor can he, because they are spiritually discerned. And the armor that protects him from discerning spiritual truth is his pride and arrogance, which says, hey, I'm enough. There's enough in me that all I have is all I need, and I don't need nothing from nobody, God. Thank you very much. I'll handle all the small stuff, and I'll talk to you when it's big enough to warrant me asking for a little assistance. Those people know nothing of Christ. They know nothing of his saving grace. They know nothing of his mercy. They know nothing of his trial. They know nothing of his tribulation and his travail for his own. They are not partakers in his death, and therefore they cannot be partakers of his life. So when you're speaking to these people, you need to know with whom you're dealing so that you can properly bring the gospel to bear. You also need to understand that it is the law that leads us to Christ. So a great place to start to bring the gospel to bear is to bring the law to bear on their sin. Psalm 19 tells us that the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. And when you bring the law to bear, that's what God uses to show us our need for a Savior. So be unapologetic in this gospel age about preaching the gospel beginning with the law. The scripture tells us that the law and the prophets belong to us and to our children forever. They're given to us for a reason. There is a very good reason why the first half of your Bible is the Old Testament. It's not so you can tear it out and throw it away and ignore it and pretend it doesn't exist. And it's not just so that you can read Psalm 23. And you know that I'm a great fan of reading the Proverbs. I do it every day, but it's not just for the sake of Proverbs. It is so that you might know the will of God in regards to your sin and his provision for it. 
And the gospel must have the context of the law, or it is without teeth. It is without the ability for us to even take it in. Because in our pride and in our arrogance, we believe that we don't need anything. Or if we need anything, it's just a little tiny bit of help. God, I can, I can do 98.8% of this, and I just need that other point or two from you, and, and I'm, I'm good, really. How many people do you know who live their lives with that mindset? Beloved, they will open their eyes on the day of judgment and find nothing but wrath. You must understand with whom you're dealing so that you can bring to them the truth of the gospel and so that you can do it with wisdom and insight and understanding. You see, those who are his own, God grants repentance to. But he also gives to us other gifts that come along with it. He gives to us, for instance, the gift of his own presence. So look with me, please, at Isaiah chapter 57. Isaiah 57 and uh, verse 15. Thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite one. So if Pride and arrogance are our first-line defense. Does the man who believes in his own sufficiency have any hope, if things remain as they are, of God dwelling with him? No. But the man who has been struck by the law, who's been broken open by the law of God and sees his need for a Savior and understands his brokenness and understands his great offense against a holy God, the the tax collector who falls on his face before God, can't even lift his eyes to heaven and says, Oh God, please be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. In Isaiah, God says, I'm going to dwell with him. I like him. I like that heart. Now, don't lose sight of the fact that that heart itself is a gift from God. But God gives to them the gift of his own presence. And he gives to them the gift of his own being. It's a beautiful, wonderful, glorious thing. And he gives also the fruit of the Spirit to those who are his own. Galatians chapter 5. Anybody want to quote him or shall we read him? Galatians chapter 5, starting at verse 22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. So this reality tells us plainly that God's purpose in our lives is to make us like Christ. The fruit of the Spirit is the fruit of Jesus' own person in us. And those to whom God grants repentance and those to whom God gives the, the blessing of his own presence, he also grants the fruit of the Spirit. So in the midst of all of this, there is a place in our lives 
where we are called and commissioned to not only examine what others are doing so that we know how to bring the gospel to bear in their lives, but to examine what's going on in our own life so that we can bring the gospel to bear on us. To be able to say, Lord, I want to partake more of you. I want to draw more from you. I want to live closer to you. I want to be more pleasing in your sight. I want to experience the blessing of holiness so that my life is not only honoring to you, but a blessing to those around me. I want Jesus to be more like you. And people who dive in with that kind of a heart will receive more and more of what God is promising as they walk in that way. Because God dwells with those who are of a humble and contrite spirit, and he dwells with them to revive them, to lift up their spirit, to give them the blessing of knowing him, and to give them the blessing of understanding that righteousness has been imparted to them. To know that, you know what, God, I know my life is not perfect, but you tell me in your word that as I walk with you, you are pleased with me. That is a great and wondrous privilege, to know that God is pleased with you, and that God does not turn away from you when you come to him and say, Father, help me. He delights in his children calling out to him for help. He delights in his children who delight in him. And that reality is a blessing from God that is given to you as you walk with him. So here's the thing. The more that you understand that and live this out, the more confidence you will have on the days when you get it wrong. Amen? Amen. The more confidence you will possess when something in your life is out of whack and and you just blow it. You're not going to be shaken and feel like, oh, God hates me now. There, there's nothing left. I'm, I'm just damned. Because you recognize that God's like and love for you had nothing to do with you in the first place. It's entirely his work. And you recognize that as God allows you to fall down so that he can pick you up, all he's doing is more of the same work that he did when he saved you in the first place. Because as the law is brought to bear on us, it breaks us open so that grace can be poured in. And as you fall down as a believer, and you recognize how far away from gracious life you actually are, the more God's grace gets poured into you to be the salve that heals you even in those times. So as we fall down, we learn to recognize that the right response for falling on our face is not to run away, but to press in. The right response for falling down is not to turn away from God's grace, but to understand how much more you need it and to lean in with everything you have and to stand before him with your arms stretched wide saying, God, I need you. But you can't do that if you don't recognize that God's grace in your life is his own self-fulfilling prophecy for your life. God has given you grace so that grace might bear fruit. He has given you grace so that grace might accomplish its end in your life. Whether you're striking on all cylinders today or not, whether you are walking in obedience in this moment or not, God gives you grace so that your life looks more like Christ. And that's his purpose in your life always. This is what the writer of Hebrews is talking about when he says, I am confident of better things concerning you. 
He's just brought the hammer down and told them all these things that could mean that if they fall away, they'll never get back. He's just brought the hammer down and said, there are those among you who don't know Christ. But then he, he turns around with the salve of this wonderful grace and says, but I'm confident of better things concerning you. I'm confident of the fact that you do know Christ. And I'm confident of that fact because his grace is made evident in you. In other words, there have been better outcomes in your life because some partakers of the gifts of God have better outcomes than others. And largely, it's because their lives have been more faithfully pressed towards God. Even though they fall down, they fail, they mess it up just like the other folks, when your response is to run towards instead of away, you can expect a better outcome in spiritual things. Now, this doesn't mean that you're going to have an easier life. It doesn't mean you're going to have more money. It doesn't mean you'll be more popular. It doesn't mean any of the things that the world wants to define as God's blessing. What it means is that you will enjoy the true blessing of God, which is communion with His Spirit and Christ-likeness in your soul. And when you press in instead of running away, that is an inevitable result in your life. God will always produce Christ-likeness in us. Amen. And the harder you lean in and the more faithfully you press after Him, the more it becomes evident in your life. And the good that comes is not related to your giftedness at all. Look at Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25 Now I'm going to extract just one point out of this parable, so I'll try to keep it on task. Verse 14 says, The kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country, who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And he gave to one five talents, and to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Then he who received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise he who had received two gained also two more. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. Now after a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received five talents came and brought another five talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I've gained five more talents beside them. And his Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you a ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also who had received the two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I've gained two more besides them. And his Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I will make you a ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you've not scattered seed, and I was afraid. I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Look, there, you have what's yours. But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seeds, so you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers, and at my coming I would have at least received my own back with interest. Therefore take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given. And he who has abundance, but from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast that unprofitable servant into the outer darkness, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So I want to point out a few things. The gifts, they all come from the same spirit. Okay? Who was the giver of the talents across the board to all of these men? 
the Lord and Master. It was God himself, right? So they all come from the same source. Who told him how much he was to give each servant? Did he have a sign-up sheet? Tell me how much you want. No. He called them in. He said, here's five for you. Here's two for you. Here's one for you. Who told him to do that? Nobody. His own pleasure, his own desire, his own knowledge of their character and their ability. And the results are not the issue as much as the faithfulness with which they used what they had been given. And I I love the fact that word for word, verbatim, he said the exact same thing to the guy who yielded five more and to the guy that yielded two more. There was no difference in their praise, no difference in his pleasure with what they did. There was only the fact that they had been faithful with what they had been entrusted, and it pleased him. So, if that's true, then a lack of faithfulness is really the issue when we get ourselves in trouble with what God calls us to do. It's not that you have less gifts than somebody else, or that you have less opportunity, or that you have more challenges, or that you have whatever. It's are you being faithful in the sphere that God has placed you and with the gifts and talents that he has equipped you with? Are you being faithful to do what you're called to do? Not are you being faithful to do what I'm called to do. Not are you being faithful to do what Gene is called to do. Are you being faithful to do what you are called to do and what you are equipped to do? Because remember, the master gave them the ability to go out and invest and to work with what he gave them. He provided everything that was necessary. So whatever it is that God has called you to do, you need to understand at the outset, he has called you and he has equipped you. He has given you the ability to fulfill his calling in your life. And this grace is magnificent and glorious and ubiquitous. It belongs to the children of God. Because what he held the, the, the other man accountable for was his failure to be obedient to the same command that the others were, were obedient unto. What he held them accountable for was his faithlessness with what he had been given. So the promise of God is that those who are his own will be given saving grace and will be given the accompanying gifts that will allow them to fulfill his purpose in their lives. God is not cruel and God is not capricious and God is not going to call you to do something that he will not also equip you and empower you and enable you to do. Part of our problem in understanding this truth is that many times we don't understand what God is calling us to do. We think that he's calling us to do this because it matches our natural giftedness. Or he's calling us to do this because it's what is appealing to us. Or he's calling us to do this because it's something that the world looks at and says, that's what you should be doing. But the truth is, is that God calls us to our place in the world. He gives us the gifts, the abilities, the opportunities, 
And he will enable us to fulfill what he calls us to do because his purpose in all of it is not the working that he's given you. He doesn't need your work. He doesn't need you to advance the kingdom. He can do it all by himself. He calls you to cooperate with him so that you might grow in grace. Because what's underneath this parable is the truth that the master didn't need them to make him more money anyway. He had plenty. He was interested in what they were growing into being. Which is why he was so very pleased with them when they were faithful with a little. And he said, excellent, now I'm going to let you be faithful with a lot. That's so cool. You guys did so well. I'm so proud of you. That's really what the message is. Which is why he was so angry with the guy that wouldn't do anything. He wouldn't even try. I would wager that if the man who had had one talent had gone out and tried and failed miserably and lost that talent and come back to the master and said, Master, I'm sorry, I tried. I I did my best and I I lost the talent. I'm sure the master would have said, You were faithful. Enter into the joy. Because he didn't need the money. He didn't need the work. He was interested in what he was producing in his servants, which is why he gave them opportunity and gave them the ability to do what he gave them to do. And the same thing is true for us. God doesn't need our work. He desires our obedience. Philippians 1, verses 6 and 7 says, Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it's right for me to think of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch both in my chains and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of me, partakers with me of grace. I'm confident that God will finish the work he began in you. I'm confident that God will accomplish his purpose in every single one of our lives because that's what he does. He always gets his way. And he always completes what he sets out to do. Look at Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. My pages are all sticking together. Titus chapter 2, starting at verse 11, it says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. What is it that God is doing in your lives? He is making you special. He's making you a people zealous for good works, a people who are holy, a people who bear the image of Christ and who wear it with grace and with beauty. That's what he's doing. He is doing a work in you which is far more important than anything he will ever do through you. The work that matters is the work that's being done in your character. 
But for some, their fruitfulness is stunted by their sin and faithlessness, like the man with the one talent. Which brings us to the issue that fruitfulness is learned behavior. You can learn to bear fruit. You can learn to put on Christ and that your life would reflect that fruitfulness. Further on in Titus chapter 3, verse 14 says, Let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs, so that they may not be unfruitful. Let our people learn to do the right thing. Let our people learn to walk in obedience. Let our people learn to maintain these good works and to do the things that are in front of them to do so that they will not be unfruitful. He's not talking about producing fruit in the world. He's talking about producing the fruit of righteousness. And so fruitfulness is something that you can learn by your obedience. Now, the works that accompany salvation are evidentiary. They are not causative. They do not save you. Okay, I need to stress this. Look at Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, starting at verse 4. Paul says this. To him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from the works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. So, that means that it is inspection time. It is our duty and obligation to examine ourselves and to make sure of the presence of these saving graces as well as monitoring the condition of our soul. It's very possible that somewhere along your walk as a Christian, you've heard somebody say, don't ever question your salvation, don't ever do that, because to question it is to call God a liar. Sounds good. The problem with it is, it is completely contrary to what the scripture commands us to do. Look with me, please, at 2 Corinthians 13. 2 Corinthians 13. Verses 5 and 6 say this. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you are disqualified? But I trust that you will know we are not disqualified. So what's he say? He says, look, examine yourselves. You need to find out, you need to make certain whether or not Christ is in you. Now, here's where you need to have your head correctly adjusted and screwed on for the question. Because at the moment that you find something in your life which is contrary to what God tells you to do, the enemy's going to sweep in from the side, he's going to knock your pins out from under you, and he's going to tell you, see, you're not a Christian. A Christian wouldn't think that way. A Christian wouldn't do that. A Christian wouldn't say those things. A Christian wouldn't, a Christian wouldn't, a Christian wouldn't. I think we read something about two men in a temple. And the man who was convicted by his own sin got up in disgust and stormed out because he could never be good enough. No. He cried out, God be merciful to me, I'm a sinner. 
So when God shows you your sin and the enemy swoops in to knock your pins out from under you, your response is important. And your response is very easy. God be merciful to me, a sinner. We repent when the Spirit shows us sin in the same manner that we repented when the Spirit showed us our sin at the outset. Where we get in trouble is when we refuse to even ask the question, to refuse to even examine our lives, refuse to even engage with the reality of our own sin because of our pride and arrogance. Remember, does God dwell with the humble or does God dwell with the arrogant? He dwells with the humble. He dwells with the one who has a heart which is contrite. And he tells us that he will lift up the heart of the contrite one. That he will restore the one who is aware of his sin and is crying for mercy. So your obligation when the Spirit is showing you these things is to cry out for mercy. Which is why when you bring the gospel to bear on somebody who the Spirit is not working in, what's their response? How dare you! But when you bring the gospel to bear and the Spirit is working in their lives, it's such a different perspective. They're broken. They just want to be healed. That perspective is the perspective of the gospel. That perspective is the perspective of grace. As it works in them, it works in us the same way. It works in us so that we ourselves are drawn closer and closer to him. The response for the discovery of sin is very simple. We ask for mercy. Lamentations chapter 3 verse 40 says, Let us search out and examine our ways and turn back to God. Isn't that beautiful? Let us search out and examine our ways and turn back to God. Now, If the result is positive, if you examine your life, you look at it, you say, yes, I'm in the faith. I'm I'm walking in a good place right now. God has been faithful. He's been sustaining me. He's been preserving me from sin. He's been helping me gain victory over the indwelling sin that I've been struggling with. God, thank you so much. What do you do with that? You use it to stir up love and good works in other believers. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. tells us this. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the gathering together of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. What's he tell us to do? He tells us to use the blessing that God has given to us in our lives to encourage and to stir up love and good works in other believers. Look at me at 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 5. Actually, let's back up to verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these 
you might be made partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in the world through lust. But also, for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to read that again. If these things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly in the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Verse 12, For this reason I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things. So this is how we stir up love and good works in other believers. We remind them of the truth of God. Translation, we preach the gospel to ourselves and we preach the gospel to one another. And we do it faithfully and we do it continually and we do it excitedly and we do it passionately and we do it so that Christ is honored among us. We are to be a gospel-proclaiming people all the time, all the time, all the time. I will be all the more diligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. So it doesn't matter if somebody understands it. They shouldn't roll their eyes and go, I know this, now be quiet. I know that you know it, but you need to hear it. I need to hear it. We all need to hear it, all the time. Yes, I think it's right, as long as I'm in this tent, to stir you up, By reminding you. So that's the same phrase that the writer of Hebrews uses. To stir up love and good works. Knowing that I must shortly put off my tent. Just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, verse 15. I will be careful to ensure. That you always have a reminder of these things. After my decease. What's that reminder? Well we just read it. (laughs) First and second Peter. The gospel of Mark. Ghost written by Peter. Peter made sure that the words that God gave him to give to the church, he made available to them so that they would remember. Now, I'm not suggesting that you all have to write books and all that sort of thing. My point is, is that he was clear that the stirring up of good works that was necessary for the church was something that had to go on, and that's what God told him to do. My point is, you use what God gives you to stir up love and good works in other believers. When you examine your faith and you're shown something that's out of line with God's will, repent. When you examine your faith and you're shown something beautiful and glorious that God has done in you, confess it. Share it with one another. That's one of the things that I want to see us be doing during our time of praise. It's not just necessarily the the good external things that are going on, but if God is showing you something in your soul and you're understanding something and there's truth being revealed to you, share that. Odds are, I need to hear it. Amen? Share that. Share what the Lord has been doing in your life, which means what the Lord has been doing in your soul. Because by doing this, 
not only are you going to encourage the rest of us, but you're also going to give yourself the confidence that, yes, God is at work in my life, and I do belong to him, which is your best armor when the enemy does his best to knock you down. When the enemy does his best to make you feel broken and afraid and alone, your best defense is the confession of the fact that God is at work in you. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you give to us grace in this day and that you would teach us to love you, to honor you, to obey you, to take you at your word. And God, it's so hard for us sometimes because we live in a land that is always attacking the truth. God, let us not give in to that, but instead let us affirm the truth, let us confess the truth, let us live the truth, that Christ would be honored among us. God, I pray that if there are any in the sound of my voice, what, by whatever means they hear it, who don't know you, I pray that you call them to life. And I pray, Lord, for any that are in the sound of my voice who do know you but are struggling, that you would encourage them, that you would give them grace. If there's something to repent of, bring it to their mind and help them repent. But God, where they're just overborne and and overcome, I pray that you would grant to them victory and relief. And I pray, God, that in this day, Jesus would be made much of, that his glory would be made known. We ask it all in the name of Jesus. Amen.